This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Some old sayings that appear that you haven't heard in a while that are obscure, um, some of them that you might use in your everyday life. Um, one of the sayings uh, you might know, uh, a verbal contract isn't worth the paper it's written on. Um, these are just some great ones I find. All cats love fish, but hate to get their paws wet. The best things come in small packages, so my wife keeps saying, you know. One I actually grew up with, my dad said to me over and over again, he was probably trying to get me out of the house, to be honest with you. It was the faint heart never won the fair lady. For years he kept saying that to me, and I think he just wanted me out of the house and married. <laughs> uh, life, a uh, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and life is what happens when you, while you're busy pl- making other plans. Um, one of the ones I really like, um, I, I love history and that type of thing, and one that keeps appearing whenever you're looking at history, and even when you're looking at the Bible and Bible history, one that keeps appearing is, cometh the hour, cometh the man. You know, when you think in history, we can think of certain times and certain people have come along and have risen to the top at times of national or, uh, or spiritual decay or, or, tra- or catastrophe. We think, obviously, we can think straight back right away to Winston Churchill at that moment when the nation was on its knees and prepared to be defeated, really, by the Germans. He stepped up and he gives his, such rousing speeches that galvanized the nation in the face of Nazi Germany. We can think of other people who have stepped up as well, Abraham Lincoln and his addresses that have changed America and ended slavery. Other people who have appeared over the time, Nelson Mandela, arguably a controversial figure, but kept the nation, as it were, for a while uh, equally balanced. He he brought the the blacks and the whites together in a way that really is quite remarkable when you think about it. Uh, Don't know where the nation's going from then, but at the time, he was a remarkable man. And of course, for those football fans, Jurgen Klopp, Whenever Liverpool was in the darkness and the doldrums, facing, facing terrible times, he came along and he saved Liverpool. <laughs> but of course, we're not here to speak about people like that. We're here to look at the word and look at men who, are, who arose in times of national catastrophe, at times of dilemma, at times of strife. And what better place to start than in the book of Judges? So if you have your Bible with you this morning, or this evening, sorry, turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. This is a bit of a history book we're looking at. But I'm going to look, we want to read it, and we will look at the story in the context, and we want to see if there's anything that we can learn Can we glean anything from this that will encourage us and help us and strengthen us for the road ahead? Because realistically, we have to have a reason for reading the Bible. We read it to get the word into our spirits and into our souls so that it will strengthen us, so that it will keep us on the path that we have been set. 
that'll keep us marching on towards God and towards the things of God. And that's why we read the Bible. That's why we read these Old Testament stories. I had to laugh. We were having a, a conversation up in the, the sound booth there. And uh, um, someone said uh, um, that, you know, oh, we don't do enough preaching from the Old Testament. And I went, spoiler alert. We're going to preach from the Old Testament. <laughs> sister there. Um, so Judges chapter 3 and verse 7. And it says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot, forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We'll get to that name, Kushan Rashathim, but it's, it's, you know, they're putting it in there, like they're really making a point. It's a fascinating wee sort of glimpse. It's a wee, wee glimpse of the, the, the uh, judges of Israel. This was actually the first judge who came along to judge Israel, to receive them and deliver them at that time. The backstory to this to this passage and to this context here was that the children of Israel had gone through the, the, the wilderness. They'd come into the promised land. There had been a number of campaigns through the region and uh, under Joshua as they moved into the promised land, moved into the land that God had promised for them. And then what happens is the children of Israel, okay, Joshua passes away. Now what are we going to do? I know the first ones to go up, we'll send, jo- we'll send Judah and Simeon. Actually, God commands them because that's the first lands they're coming to. So Judah and Simeon, the brothers, get together, the tribes, that is, get together to inherit, to take the land that God had promised for them. So they start to move in. They start to conquer those tribes, that are, those peoples that they come against. The land of, of Canaan at that time, it was really what we would think of in terms of small city-states, you think of Greece nowadays as one whole nation, but if you think in Greece in antiquity where it was a number of city-states, you had Athens, you had Corinth, you had Sparta. These were cities that were beholden to themselves. They controlled a certain amount of land around their city. And that, that was where they then had their leader as their king. It is the exact same story here in Canaan. They, they had some sort of confederations at times, but they were independent cities, and they did their own thing. Sometimes they came together to make war, especially against the children of Israel, but they had their own autonomy over themselves. So a city in those days wasn't really a city of 100,000 people or 200,000 people. Sometimes it could only be tens of thousands of people, but it was still substantial compared to small hamlets or small families. And as they came through the land, Caleb decided one day, they're coming along and they're conquering and they're defeating the enemies and they're claiming what God has led out for them. Caleb, you remember Caleb and Joshua, one of the spies, the man who was full of faith, who actually says to Joshua as he entered into the promised land, he says, give me this mountain. I was promised this mountain and I want it. Even as an older man who had spent all those years in the wilderness watching people die because of their unbelief, 
he was still full of faith and full of confidence in what he had been promised, that he still wanted it. So Caleb and Joshua are leading into, this prom- into the promised land, and Caleb says to himself, you know what? I have a daughter. I need to get her married off. And he didn't have a coat like my dad did. You know, uh, uh, the faint heart never wore the fair maiden. We won the fair maiden. But he decided that he was going to send, he was going to set a challenge. Uh, uh, whoever can take this city, the city they came to, it's, it's listed a couple of places actually, but in Judges 1.13, we're not going to turn to it. The city was Kirjath Sefer, or Debur. Debur is the, the, the Jewish name, the Hebrew name that they gave it after the fact. Uh, so they called, the city was called Kirjath Sefer. I want someone to go and conquer this city, and whoever conquers this city will get my, my daughter's hand in marriage. It's quite a challenge for a man who's full of faith. Even in his older years, he's like, you know, he's, he's a go-getter. You know, he's got some grit. He's going like, you know what? No, not just anyone's going to marry my daughter. It's going to be someone who's full of faith. Someone who is a man of action, a man of confidence, a man who will go and get what is offered. There's a wee bit of a lesson in that for us as well. So they did was he set the challenge and he said, whoever can go into this city and conquer it will be worthy of my daughter, will get her hand in marriage. Like I said, maybe he was looking for a man of action, a man full of faith and confidence in God, a man who was not going to put off any challenge, especially marrying the daughter of Caleb. Now, what about the city? The city was, uh, like I said, it was Kirjath Sefer. That was the Canaanite name for the city. It means that what it meant was it was a city of literature or the city of the book. It was one of the royal cities of, of Canaan. It was a special city. It was one of the, these, as I said, they had confederations. So the king of that city would have been a man of prestige. He would have been a man of renown. The, the implication is some of the commentators talk about this city as probably a place that had the annals of the Canaanites. They had their records of what had happened in the region. Maybe they had uh, historians and scribes of sorts there who recorded things. Maybe they recorded things about their gods, you know, their, their traditions and things they got there. And Caleb decided, this is the city we're going to go for. You know what? There's a message there. That's not even my message today. But the man of God set a challenge. Go get the place that the enemy holds as a stronghold. The enemy's got a stronghold, and I want you to go get it. I've given you the authority to go get it. Boy, there's something in that. Boy, there's something in that, isn't there? The enemy got a stronghold in your life tonight. Has he got a stronghold in your family? God's authority and God's word tells you to go and get it. Don't be be off put by the the, the size of the city. Don't be put off by the renown of that city or of that king, but go and get it. Greater is he, as John said this morning, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. That's not even a message, but that's glory. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous to know. So he set the challenge. Go out and take that city. Go and take it. Now, you have to remember in those days, they had no no Bible to, to refer back to. There was places and people's names were significant. They bore meaning. And people in the the, the nation and the tribes would know that this name means a certain thing. They would get used to hearing certain words and certain groupings of letters. And with that, they would associate it with the, the meaning. For example, L, we all know L means God. 
and things like that there, Jehovah, Jah, and stuff like that there, they would be aware of, of meanings and significance like that there. And obviously at this time, as they moved into the promised land and they were starting to conquer, they had the tabernacle in the wilderness. That was established in the wilderness, so they had that. They knew the significance of it. They knew what each of the places were. That was being fed out into the nation by the priests. So they were beginning more and more aware of the things of God. And they had come to the point where they were, they were aware of them. So the name that they actually renamed this city, they renamed this city Debur, which, uh, which, trans, which they're uncertain exactly what the meaning is, but there's a Jewish word or the Hebrew word, sorry, D-E-B-H-I-R. They, the, the word in our Bible says D-E-B-I-R, D-E-B-H-I-R. And they believe this is a derivative of this word or it's a, a, a corruption of this word. And this place, this word was the word for the Holy of Holies. It was a word for that special place where you had intimate relationship with God. Isn't that wonderful? It's that place which was once a stronghold that the enemy had, that they kept records you know, in our lives, maybe it's that place where they kept the records of all our wrongs. God says, don't be, don't be put off by that place. In fact, I've given you authority to go into that place, to conquer that place. That place that was once a place where they, the enemy kept a record against you. I'm going to make that a place of intimacy with you. Isn't that wonderful? Is there something in that? Is, is, is there something special there? So he went in. The man who stepped up to the plate, of course is Othniel. Othniel stepped up to the plate. He was like, I want to be the one who marries Caleb's daughter. Well, he's a man of faith. He's a man of confidence. I don't know what she was like, but I guarantee you, we'll see in a second, she was a woman not to be trifled with. And Othniel went, you know what? She's the one for me. You know, she's the one I want. Imagine marrying into that family. Othniel stepped up, and his name means the Lion of God. Amen. And he went into this city now, it says that he was a, um, a relation of Caleb's. There's so much questions over what his actual relationship was. Some people, uh, some tr commentators and some translations you read will present it that it was Caleb's brother's son, so his nephew. In other cases you read, uh, the Talmud actually says that he was Caleb's brother. But he was some sort of relation anyway from the tribe, very closely related and here he was, the Lion of God. He steps up. I'm going to go and get this. I'm going to go in here, and I'm going to conquer this city. And I'm going to, I'm going to take this city, this dry and dusty city, and it's going to become the city of God's holy of holies, the city of intimacy with God. It's going to become a special place. Again, they didn't have a Bible, so they, once they changed the name, there would be an association with that forever into the nation's mind and into their mindset. So Othniel married the daughter of Caleb, whose name was Akasha. Aksha, sorry. Um, the daughter of Caleb. As I said, she was a remarkable woman, obviously brought up in the house of Caleb. She had been given a generous dowry, as uh, all fathers did in those days. Um, I've told Alicia she's not getting a generous dowry because we're not in uh, <laughs> patriarchal times. <laughs> but uh, she was given a generous dowry, a piece of land, but again, typical of, of, of one of Caleb's family. She turns, she says, you know what, Othniel, go ask my dad. He's given us a bit of land. Ask him for a well. 
you know, she's not content to have just a piece of land. You know, you read some commentators and they're like very disparaging of her. They're like, you know what? She did not learn godly contentment with just all that she had. I, I'll be honest, that was the very first commentary I read said she was just a woman full of covetousness and uh, discontentment and things like that. And then I turned to another commentator. Thank the Lord for another commentator. <laughs> and then another one and another one. And they talked about her faith and her confidence. See, her confidence was in the generosity of her dad. Her confidence was in a, was in a dad who she knew had faith. A, a, a dad who had a big vision of what God could do. Who had, a, who had an unlimited, imagi- not imagination, but unlimited. He believed in a God who was unlimited. I'm an old man, but I'll take that mountain. That was enough for him. Here's a do- his daughter comes along, the next generation comes along, and she says, you know what? I believe like my dad believed. I believe I can get more. I believe there's something else there for me. Dad, you know. And she asked Othniel, and now Othniel, dear love him, like, he was a man of faith, and, but his wife probably didn't give him a chance to ask Caleb because she went to Caleb herself. And she says to her dad, you know, she says, give, give, me, give us a well, something, to, for, something for this land, to make it a bit more worthwhile. You can imagine her doing a bit of Balamino horse trading. Sure, that bit of ground there is not much worth much. You need to get irrigated. We need a wee bit of water there to keep that going. You, know, may, you may as well not give me anything. Give me a well and make it worth something. And again, Caleb, as generous as ever, he turned and he went, tell you what, I'll not give you one, but I'll give you two. I'll give you the upper spring and the lower spring. The upper spring and the lower spring generosity of this thing of God and the generosity of the people of God see once you get around around God and around his word once you get the faith of God working in your life you start to believe bigger things start to believe greater things you start to believe that there's no limit to God you know as you start to walk in the spirit as we heard this morning you start to believe that God is God that to be God it actually means something it means that there's no one greater there's no one with greater supply. There's no one with greater provision. There's nowhere with great, no one with greater strength, with greater power, with greater might, greater might, greater authority. But to believe that makes a whole bunch of a difference in our lives. So there we have the background to our story. So that was the background. The next is we come to the state of the union. So where are we? And again, in, in Judges chapter 3. And it says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishath, um, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served him eight years. They had continued in faith. These were the covenant people. They had come through the wilderness. The generation who were full with doubt and disbelief had passed away. Now, this was a generation who had moved into the promises. They had moved into the promised land. They, they were given this land. God has said, this land is your land. But I need you to go get it. I need you to go and take what I have given you. We're too often sit back and go, okay, thank you, Lord. And sit and wait. Sometimes God wants us to go to war. As I mentioned last week, sometimes he wants us to step up and to actually fight for what we know to be true. To fight and say, this is real, this is not real. 
This is the truth, and that is not the truth. God has promised me this, and I'm going to stand on that promise. I'm going to lay hold on that promise. I'm going to confess that promise over my life, even though I cannot see the evidence of it. I'm going to wage war against those thoughts that come against me. I'm going to wage war against those thoughts which are like we, we foxes. They're like enemies that rise up banners against us. And I'm going to stand upon God's word and what God has promised me. Because if we don't stand up and fight, if we don't stand up and claim and lay hold of what God has promised us, what is the point of God giving us a promise? The promise is to build hope in us, to build faith in us, to build confidence in him so that we actually step out on the promise. We step out in faith. Faith is a stepping word. It's a moving word. It's not just a merely sitting back and having a wee cup of tea and thinking about it word. The children of Israel were given the promised land. Go and conquer. There it is. And I'll I'll be with you. I'll help you. God is going to help them mightily. Follow me, follow my commandments, and I'll be with you. And everyone you come against will be defeated. That was what God told them, clearly, over and over again. Go, and I'll be with you. And you'll conquer. You'll sweep them all before you. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. It said in that passage you just read there, they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. Forgot the Lord their God. How can you forget the Lord your God? This is the God who delivered you. Yes, it wasn't you yourself personally, but it was your family. It was your your grandfather, your great-grandfather. They had been delivered. They had been rescued from Egypt, taken out of that place. Mightily, The stories, I'm sure, had permeated through. They had heard about those things, passed them on. Those days, they, as I said, they didn't have any written Bible, but they had an oral tradition where they would recount stories. Dear sakes, some of the stories my mom and dad tells from, from decades ago, they remember it word for word. <laughs> it's a generational thing. They passed those stories on, but they forgot Oh, that's just that's just the old people talking. That's just them old ones. They, they, what do they know? They don't really have life like we have it. They don't, they don't, they don't understand the modern world. They don't understand the, the, the way that you have to live your life now. Well, at least that's what our kids say to us, isn't it? So that's what the younger generation says nowadays. You guys don't really know how it is, what it is to live. You really don't know. You think that they're God stuff, that Bible stuff. You think that's important. You think God really gave you a promise? <laughs> so the enemy will use any voice he can use. It's not that they're evil. It's not that Peter was evil whenever he talked to, to Christ. But, but Christ responding to what Peter had said, those words, get thee behind me, Satan. So it was those words that were the, were the, problem, were the, the words of Satan. Not that Peter was. Peter wasn't... But it was those words and what they could do to, to the mind. Because remember, Jesus was, it was a man. He could be affected by these things. And there's a warning in this for us. The people of Israel had moved into this land. The, 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 the children of Israel had moved into this land. They hadn't possessed it. They hadn't honored God. If you go back into the... Uh, into Exodus, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you read God encouraging the people of Israel to pass on to their children and their, chil- their children the stories of what had happened. 
they had got complacent along the way. They'd failed to honor God in passing that along and transmitting that to their next generation, to showing them and telling them the significance of it. They had gone into the promised land. Oh, this is so nice. I've got a plot of land now of my own. I'm no longer, you know, our family's no longer slaves. Look at us now. We've moved up in the world. We've got a four-bedroom house. We've got three cars or two cars in the drive. I've got a TV in most of my downstairs bedrooms. Yo, we've arrived. And the God who blessed them was pushed back, pushed back in their imaginations, pushed back in their heart as the things that they had started to become elevated. So oh, this is great. I'm just enjoying the blessings of God. I bet you said they, they stopped saying blessings of God. They said, I'm enjoying the blessings. There's a danger in that. I'm just enjoying blessings. Blessings of what? We, we, that's why we say blessings of God, because God is the one who blesses. So the children of Israel had taken it for granted. And they hadn't been passed on. They hadn't been stirred up and reminded to their kids and, uh, what was happening, the importance of it. You know, all the parents in here tonight, it's so important that we get the things of God into, into the, the hearts and souls of our kids. So important that they know what's important to us and we are doing what God has told us. See, a window of opportunity to speak into a young child's life, it shrinks very quickly. Realistically, you've only got 12, 13 years maybe to get as much of the things of God into the life, into their lives. Because by the time they get to 15, 16, 17, they're hearing so many other voices that are louder and louder and louder. So many other things that are, are, are distracting them. Now, they might hear things that they hadn't heard before that they might question, and that's all right. There's people who can answer those questions. There's resources available. But our opportunity to get into the lives of our kids and our grandkids is shrinking fast. Shrinking fast. It's important that we get as much of that in there as possible. Such a godly heritage the children of Israel had. God moving in their midst. What about our country? What about our godly heritage that we had? 1859, seeing over 100,000 people come to know Christ. That's on top of who were already, those people who were already saved. 1859, you had over 100,000 people extra joined the church. And where are we today? What's our nation like today? Look at one statistic. Suicide. Five people a week in Northern Ireland end their lives. But I thought we had the words of life. I thought we had good news that could set people free. I thought we could deliver people because the word of God says that he will set the prisoner free. Three times as many people die by suicide in Northern Ireland each year than are killed in road traffic collisions. A total of 219,000 people have been direct directly affected by suicide since 2005. 
This isn't an indictment against our church. I'm just talking to the people of God in general. To go from one, you know, from a generation ago, a few generations ago, where we had over 100,000 extra people got saved, to the point where we're in a situation now in our culture, in our society, where you have got five people a week thinking that there's no hope, thinking that there's no life out there, that there's nothing worth living for. Five people a week. That's a horrific statistic. Anyone who kills himself is so sad. They get to that point where they see no end, no future, no hope. Have we too forgot the Lord our God as a nation? Have we forgot the God who is the God of deliverance, the God of healing, the God of wholeness? Have we forgot the God who who promised to be with us in the night season? I mean, that's only suicide. What about the other statistics we can list about our society and all the woes of it? All the other mental health issues and things like that there? We have a message and a truth that can change lives. This can change lives. It can build up a broken down life. And God can heal them. Heal them emotionally and heal them spiritually. God can do a work in a broken life like no other else. He can do heart surgery on a level that would leave you staggered. I look around here tonight and there's people who were at, at a point of crisis, a point of catastrophe, a point of disaster. And they came in contact with the preaching of the word and with the word of God and the spirit of God. And he built us up. He healed us. He gave us strength. He gave us hope. He gave us a future. Give things to be confident in. I think we need as a church and as a, as a, a church in general, I'm talking, we need to return to a confidence in the word of God, a confidence in God's ability to change lives. The children of Israel had forgot that. They forgot that God was a God of construction, a God of, of building up people, of raising these slaves and bringing them up. And they're, they're a prince with God. They'd forgotten these things. Next thing to point out actually is, um, as I've stumbled through the name of your man, the king, Kushan Rishath Amin, king of Mesopotamia. His name means man of double wickedness or man of double evil, double, double evil. They're not sure if this was actually his real name or whether this was a caricature by the, by the writers. They think that this might have been them just making, not making fun of, but pointing out the state of the nation. Now you're, now you're going to be governed by a man whose name means double wickedness. See, for, the, for uh, what wickedness is, wickedness is to know the truth and to do what is not the truth, to do the lie, to follow the lie. So the people of Israel knew what the truth was, but they had compromised. And their compromise had led to a societal failure. They got to the point where they were conquered and they were governed by this man. Now, Kushan, or Kush, 
was also the name of Nimrod's father. Now, he's not, he's not related, but it's ironic, I find, that, that Nimrod, the man who assembled the people, got them together to build the Tower of Babel to exalt mankind and exalt his own ability and the ability of man and, and his ability to build a tower up to heaven. Cush, his father, it's, it's, it's like here, God's telling them a story. He's saying to him, listen, do you see this man who's conquered? It's because he's a man and he's walking in manly strength and he's walking in manly wickedness. I don't want you to walk in manly strength and manly weakness. I want you to walk in my ways. Amen. I want you to remember who I am. I, I am the I am. I want you to remember that and walk in my ways. It's a slap in their face. He's saying to him, listen, you're being governed by manliness. And I mean that in the small m sense of the word, in the sense where they, they're walking in their own ability and their own things and their own ways, heedless of the, the, heedless of the things of God, just like... Going back, actually, he's not even the, um, the, the daughter of Caleb, Ashna, Ashash, Aksha, Aksha. She asked for the two springs, the upper spring and the lower spring. Could be speaking of things that are above, things of spirit, things of God, things of heaven, and things of this earth. We have to be aware that we're on this earth, we're walking through it, but we have to be focused as well on those things above and the things of God. So he's telling them a message here. The manly things is just purely here. That's all these people are walking in the strength of their own ability and their own mind and their own ingenuity. He said, but I want you to live in a different way. I want you to live with a different focus. This man also came from Mesopotamia. It said there, um, I've turned over the page. Um, it says, verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent. If you can picture on the map where Israel is, you've got, you've got the Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan, and then you've got the Dead Sea at the bottom. Up and to the right, the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which flowed up. And that's the area this man has come from. He's come a, a, a quite a distance over to conquer the children of Israel. Mesopotamia, this is the area of where Abraham came from. He came from that, he came from Ur of the Chaldees. It's up in that sort of a region. You've also got in that area, that is where Eliezer went to get um, Isaac's bride. Remember, he went back to the place of my father's to get a bride for him. That's also where Jacob went to, to get Leah and Rachel. It's the old country, it's the old place. It's the old man, Cush, the old man from the old place. See, whenever they weren't walking in the promises of God and in the ways of God, the old man rose up again and came to dominate, came to reinforce his position. This dovetails in with what John was saying this morning. When we're walking in the flesh and we're walking not in the promises of God and the spirit of God, the old man rises up again to take dominance, to reinforce himself. And that's what's happened here to the children of Israel. We're looking at it in story form. The old man and the old place and the place where they had come from originally and they had left from. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of that region. But the old man had risen up to take dominance. He said, ah, I don't like people who try to walk in the promises of God. I don't like people who stand, try to stand in faith and believe God. I don't like it when people do that. Oh, the old man rises up again. 
rises up to, 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 to reinforce their position, to scramble for a wee piece of life. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? And this king from this place had come to dominate the children of Israel. He'd come along and he had set up probably garrisons in the cities. He was taking from them their harvest, which was meant to be for them and for their children, was no longer going to their children. The blessings of the, of the land was no longer being appreciated by the people. It was now being taken to feed foreigners. They were coming in and with the garrisons, probably they were raising up their, their uh, it says their, their Asherah, their, their or, uh, groves of, of, uh, to do with their pagan worship. And they'd raise up these groves and they'd worship there. And the people were getting, wow, these, these men have come in. They're, they're well armored. You know, they're, they're culturally, they're different from us. You know, and oh, it's that, it's that whole other culture, isn't it? We get enamored with foreign cultures, <coughs> which is not, not a bad thing necessarily, but they were enamored with well, these are foreigners. We, they were still finding their way. They hadn't quite moved into the promises of God, they hadn't quite got the stamp of God on their lives. They hadn't allowed their, their, their whole culture and way of thinking to be formed by God. So when they seen these foreigners and they're raising groves and they're raising temples to these other gods, they became enamored by them. And next thing you know, they're becoming perplexed by them because they're taken from them, they're taken from them, they're taken from them. Who knows what other types of worship and types of uh, uh, practices were going on. I know some of the pagan gods required child sacrifice and things like that there. Who knows what was going on here? But the people were vexed hard and they cried out to God. Maybe a few people still held on to the faith of Jehovah. Maybe a few of them still held on to belief in the God that delivers. Maybe a few of them still talked about these things. Certainly in the south where Judah was, there was a, a real kernel of truth there, a kernel of devoted followers of God. Certainly in other places, I'm sure there was a few and the cry goes out, their gods aren't helping us at all. We're the slaves, we're the prisoners in our own land. And the cry went up, and from the south on a farm, Othniel appears. Othniel, the lion of God, heard the call. He's already done so much in our story, hasn't he? Married Aksha. <laughs> And then he hears the call to go. This man stands at odds with the other men. Cush of the double witness. This is a man of God, a man of faith. He had not abandoned the ways of his fathers. He was still a devoted follower of God. He'd been blessed. His wife had asked for the springs and they'd be given a, a double portion. It says there in verse 9, it says, The Lord raised up a deliverer. Other translation says, Raised up a savior. Sent someone to save them or sent a champion to their rescue. Glory to God. Amen. Sent a champion to their rescue. Verse 10 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel and he went out to war. Significant, isn't it, the order in which he did it? He judged Israel first. He judged Israel first. He told them about the things that they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing. Now, he didn't do it on his own bat. 
didn't do it out of his own imagination or out of his own, you know, see you, see you, that tribe up there. I never did like them. No, he didn't do it out of a tribal anger, animosity or anything like that there. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged. The Spirit of the Lord anointed him and came upon him and he was able to, with clear sight, enunciate what was wrong with the nation. He was able to point out to them the things that they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing. He was able to tell them that you've been following after these gods, that's your problem. You haven't been serving God. You haven't been following the gods who delivered us. That's your problem. He judged them first. Because he wasn't going to be able to go out and to war on his own. But he had to get the people of God in line and in order. Sort out the things that were troubling them that they were distracted with. And bring back to their mind and to their remembrance the things of God. Bring back to them the worship of the true God and how to follow God, and how to live righteously, and how to live purely, and how to be different from other nations. And then he says, right, now we're ready to go to war. Let's go to war. He was not a man of crude strength or amazing enterprise. He appeared without offense and without shame. He just appeared. The cry went out, and the anointing came on him. And he appeared on the scene. For many of them, he was probably unheard of at that time. <coughs> and he appeared and he delivered them. He led them to, led them to defeat Kushan, Rastatham. So what is the moral of our story? First of all, what is the warning to us? When you receive the answer to your promise... Remember where it came from. Yeah, that's right. What brought you the victory will help you keep the victory. Mm-hmm. What brought you the victory will help keep you keep the victory. Never forget God. What is the reminder to us? Pass on the great news of what God has done to the next generation. Pass it on. Lord, help us if we get to another 50 years and people have, have, have forgotten how good God is. I don't believe that'll happen. I believe there's places and there's, there's bastions and there's lights in this, this country that will still proclaim the good news. And we need to keep at it, keep doing it, keep proclaiming it. Even if we get tired of proclaiming it, keep proclaiming it. And how should we respond to the old man rising again? Bring in the man of faith, the man who has the spirit of the Lord on him. Seek God and stir up once again the love for God, his word and prayer, which is our conversation with God. So where are you tonight? What are you facing? What are you going through? Has there been something come along that is oppressing you, has put you in bondage? Have you allowed things of this world to weigh heavy on you? To burden you? Have you become worried and confused? Full of fear? These are the tools that the old man uses. These are tools that the enemy uses to to wrap up the people of God, to distract them. To distort their image of life and of the world. We face so much in our lives that would confuse us, that would worry us, that would make us feel hopeless, 
make us feel depressed, make us feel a million different things that are negative. But I want to remind us tonight that God's still the God of deliverance. God is still the God who's in the business of setting people free. He's still in the business of building up broken down walls, the repair of the breaches. He's still a God who can answer our prayer. We don't have to have wandered off and gone into sin or into uh, error or things like that there. We could just find ourselves surrounded by the enemy. But God is still a God of deliverance. God is still a God who lifts up the meek and lowly. God is still a God that, that we can worship that we can adore. That's the kind of God I can love. A God who loves us no matter where we are, no matter what way he finds us, and he can lift us up, give us a robe of righteousness, put his arm around us and call us his child. That's something to be, that's something special, to be called the child of God, to have a God that we can love and adore, that we can bring back to our mind and bring back to our heart. As we were reminded this morning to to get into the word, to, to worship God for who he is, for what he's done in our lives, what he's promised us, what he has given us. Start off with just what he's given us and then 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 start worshiping him from what he promised us. Keep him first and foremost in our minds. So we come to a point where we're no longer bound. We're, We're no longer enslaved to the old man and to the old ways, but we've been set free. I love songs that talk about being set free, being delivered, being freed from bondage. It's wonderful to celebrate those realities. The children of Israel had 40 years after Othniel came and delivered them from Cush. 40 years where they had a, a, a revival of sorts. They had peace all around them, but they still didn't go all the way. Because as you see, when you get to the next passage, it happened again. I pray that we will, we, we will not slip into this, the old ways again and that we will daily remind ourselves of who we are in him. Is that no, no, you know, the enemy would tell us, would tell us that the door is closed. He would tell us that the end is in sight. He would tell us that there's no hope beyond tomorrow. The enemy would tell you that. The enemy will tell you there's no deliverance on the horizon for you. The enemy will tell you that. There's no way out. The enemy will tell you that you're in trouble and there's nothing worth living for. Why would you go on with God if there's no way out? That's what the enemy will tell you. The enemy will tell you that. He'll be whispering that into your ear, into your heart. There's no way out. There's no deliverance. But I can tell you, I can tell you by, by the Spirit of God that there is a way out. Alleluia. That there is deliverance. Alleluia. That we worship a God who is a deliverer. Alleluia. God who can deliver. Amen. God who can lead us forth. Amen. That he will go with us. Praise the Lord. I think someone needs to hear that tonight. God is a God of, of life and, and future and yes. prosperity, blessings. He's not a God of death. He's a God who's a God of deliverance. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal. 
or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.